and welcome to Ukula Abroad. My name is Andre and I'm joined by my co-hosts Alexa, Nathan and Justin. As Ukraine celebrates 30 years of independence, we look back at the Orange Revolution, the first pivotal turning point of Ukraine's democratic journey in the 21st century. This and more on Zakhtazonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukraine. So when we think of uh, Ukrainian revolutions, most commonly people would think of Euromaidan, given the fact that it was the most recent revolution and it was probably the one that set Ukraine on the path that it is today. But we can't also forget the 2004 Orange Revolution, which was uh, just as important um, when it comes to uh, the... Uh, the development of Ukraina and the uh, legitimacy of its uh, elections and basically the enforcement of the will of the people, which at that time was uh, kind of being, uh, I wouldn't say overthrown, but wasn't being um, uh, carried out. So today we thought we'd uh, take a dive into what exactly the Orange Revolution was and the importance of it um, to this day and where we still see the effects of it. So just a bit of history for those who don't know, um, back in 2004, when the president of uh, Ukraine, Leonid Kuchma, um, had been given approval to seek a third term, he decided instead that he was going to endorse the candidacy of the Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych. And he was a, Yanukovych was a strong supporter of Putin and a strong supporter of um, moving closer ties towards Russia. And so what ended up happening was there they um, had an election and uh, Yunukovych ran against uh, Yushchenko, um, Viktor Yushchenko, who was a pro-Ukrainian uh, candidate who wanted to move more towards um, Europe and the EU and develop more of uh, Ukraine's national identity. So what ended up happening was there was, um, once Yanukovych was deemed to be the winner, there were calls of uh, election fraud. Um, And what ended up happening was remarkably, once people took to the streets and continued this campaign, the election was eventually overturned and uh, a new election was carried out where Yushchenko eventually uh, won that presidential election and he he then became president. So it was a very, very important part for uh, in Ukraine's history because at the time, um, and even still to, uh, when we think more recently to the uh, elections after Euromaidan, there's always been calls of, um, oh, there's been election fraud, election fraud. But in this case, it was one where those calls were actually heard and they were investigated, and eventually the Verkhovna Rada actually uh, uh, worked to actually overturn the results of the election because they knew that, well, they could see that there was actually evidence of um, voter fraud, and they wanted to actually have free and fair elections. And so since then, Ukraine has been on the path to uh, becoming a more uh, uh, democratic uh, society in terms of how its elections have been run. So, Alexa, what do you think the effects are that we can, like, see in um, the Orange Revolution still today? 
So yeah, Nathan, um, the Orange Revolution is probably the first significant event after Chernobyl that put Ukraine on the global map. And I remember as a kid going down with Mama and Tata to protest at the Ukrainian embassy against electoral fraud as a little one. And I was just like, oh, yay, road trip, fun. <laughs> but in terms of the significance of the Orange Revolution, um, like you mentioned, Nathan, um, the Verkhovna Rada created a legal mechanism to rerun a part of the election. So how Ukraine's uh, electoral system works, that for president, there's usually two rounds because to, wi to win outright, a candidate must receive 50 plus 50% plus one vote in the first round to or, to win the presidency. However, usually no candidate wins in the first round, Petro Poroshenko being a notable exception. And so usually the top two candidates go off into a runoff round, and that was the round that the Verkhovna Rada voted to rerun due to the massive electoral irregularities. And as part of this, um, there was a whole roundtable discussion involving Kuchma, Yushchenko Yanukovych, and as well as representatives of the West and Russia, so Poland, Lithuania, the European Union, and of course uh, Russia were involved in these negotiations. And as part of it, they came up um, that Ukraine uh, will, would find a way to rerun the election. And then Ukrainians themselves also came to the conclusion that the constitution needed amending and as part of the compromise, the power of the presidency was weakened to an extent and the power of parliament increased. And so and this can be seen in the position of the Speaker of Parliament. He became sort of the equivalent of not the vice president, but if the president becomes incapacitated, he becomes acting president. And this came quite handy in 2014 when Yanukovych escaped the country and there was no elected head of state left and the only one the only significant source of power that was still in the country was the Verkhovna Rada and so they were able to steer the country out of the crisis after Maidan so yeah so it's a very significant electoral electoral and um, constitutional reform yeah I would also add to that the um, another area that was quite unique in its Oh, and the way it was carried out was the fact that once September came around of um, of 2004, uh, there was a significant change in the appearance, the physical appearance of Viktor Yushchenko, and it was later then revealed that he had actually been poisoned and he was suffering from uh, dioxin poisoning, which actually uh, completely altered his face. And still to this day, you can actually see the scarring that was a result of that. And it's, allegedly, he was uh, the poisoning was carried out by a Ukrainian uh, state security service member that has now permanently left his face disfigured. So it was election fraud played a huge part of it, but there was also other, we can say, um, less... Uh, legitimate ways of trying to win the election that were carried out as well. Yeah, it's crazy, like how how much the security service interfered. But at the same time, uh, the Orange Revolution is famous for the fact that no one died during the course of it, um, and that it ended all peacefully, unlike Yevromaidan, only ten years later. So whilst they're the security services were heavily involved. Thankfully, no no one lost their lives. 
good. Um, I will also um, I'll also add to that. It's interesting that when we think about um, you know uh, faith in uh, faith in democracy and faith in um, the electoral process, it really shows how um, important it is when we look at countries like a lot of um, African countries and even countries like Haiti. Uh, recently with the assassination of their prime minister. Anytime there are countries that don't have faith in democracy, whether an election is legitimate or not, there will be calls for um, that there have been, that there has been voter fraud, which actually ends up uh, uh, reducing the people's faith in the electoral process, even though it may be a legitimate process, which is very interesting what we saw in the um, 2020 US presidential elections, where despite the despite i'd say centuries of the united states of the people in the united states having faith in their electoral process all of a sudden now you have a whole group of people who now don't have faith in their in their elections and i thought it was very interesting to see that now ukraine has kind of started to get past that and the orange revolution was that step forward when they were able to not only identify um uh, election fraud, but actually, then the fact that it was the the results were overturned and a new election was brought forward, kind of starts to uh, reinforce that there is faith that the electoral process will actually start to reflect the will of the people. And even though it might not be perfect in Ukraine, it's definitely that first step forward. Well, and I think the Orange Revolution helps cement the democratic transition of power in Ukraine because. Um, with you know, with 2014 uh, being the exception, every transfer of power in Ukraine has been quite peaceful, and that's because the like the elected officials respect the will of the people. Yeah, I think as well. Although now retrospectively we can look back and say, "Oh, this was bloodless," and and how positive that side of it was. I think, I think the idea that it would be actually um, violent, you know, it was also probably you know, a little bit of a foreign idea at the time. I mean, this was really a sit-in protest, an idea of trying to be very much exercising democratic rights in a modern democratic country. And I think in some ways it's been referred to that this was kind of an awakening for Ukrainian democracy and national identity because they suddenly felt like, well, we are being different. We're not what we thought we were. Um, we're not living under the Soviet times that we, we you know, kind of lived in limbo over for the past, you know, past 13 years to that point. Um, so in some ways, maybe that's that's the actual aspect where it, I think it was trying to be a peaceful protest using democratic ideals for very much that purpose. And I don't think um, 2014 or the 2013 Maidan started any differently, but arguably that's also when control of the intelligence services and things like that were really, um, I guess, re uh, re reallocated to be much more pro-Ukrainian. So arguably at that point when what was actually being changed or what was being revolted against, perhaps the stakes were a little bit higher and, and that's where uh, that reaction happened. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the Orange Revolution kick-started the process of modern Ukrainianization in Ukraine and a lot of people sort of found their Ukrainian identity. And it's quite interesting to watch because if you watch... Yushchenko's inauguration, he then gave a public speech on Maidan after he was officially inaugurated, and he ended his speech with Slavo, like Slavo Ukraini, and 
no one on my done responded. But if he'd said the same speech today, the whole of my done would have responded with Haroim Slava. And it shows you like how far Ukraine has progressed on its national reawakening. Yeah, and I think it's quite an important thing to cover is where Ukraine was in its history. We're obviously celebrating 30 years of Ukrainian independence. And the Orange Revolution kind of falls almost since a halfway marker. It's a little bit less, but a halfway marker between uh, 91 and now 2021. And so when we think about it that way, it really was, as we said, an awakening. It was a chance where the country finally started maybe breaking away from the blurred lines that existed between Russia and Ukraine up until then, uh, in terms of language, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, everyday life. There was a lot of things that were very interlinked. Um, and it was also a time that was probably changing. Uh, although the Orange Revolution is the marker, there was a lot of things happening. If we remember, that's actually the year Ruslana also won um, Eurovision and kind of you know, had a bit of a, an aspect to Ukrainian you know, culture being more globalized, and especially in Europe being more prominent. Uh, there was also, as we talked about last week, uh, four, three, sorry, three Summer Olympics under their belt at that point with Athens happening earlier in the year as well. So I think um, it's interesting to think about how that's a halfway marker for, uh, I guess, Ukraine's um, democratic journey. And then the other thing that's very important about this process, we've mentioned, obviously, the fact that the uh, the elections have become very much more open and democratic ever since 2004. But the other thing that became very much more open and democratic, and maybe is not, it's still imperfect, is the free press that came in Ukraine from that process. So while press was quite heavily restricted and obviously organised and, you know, um, quite oppressed, uh, really the big, the big win from the 2004 Orange Revolution is the fact that the press became dramatically more open and free and had a voice and had multiple voices instead of one voice. And that's actually something that although uh, Yanukovych would go on to win the 2010 elections, um, he couldn't actually come to close down that aspect of uh, the, the change in Ukrainian life. His attempts to try and bring the media back down to a controlled state media really didn't work at that point. Much has also been made around the idea that the Ukrainian Orange Revolution was actually a failed revolution. Certainly Russian propaganda would like to make you think that. And, and there's also, I think, uh, some quarters of the Ukrainian public that feel that the election of Yushchenko, although democracy succeeded, the actual presidency and his, uh, his time in office didn't bring the prosperity and success in Ukraine that everyone was hoping for. And I think... Although we could argue and debate the realities of that situation and, and argue against the challenges that were faced by that government and the corruption that they still had to overcome and a whole host of other issues, I think it's interesting to parallel the Ukrainian voter and that hope and change feeling to the American voter and hope and change that was promised by the Obama the election of Obama in 2008. And certainly it's four years later, but I think both scenarios, and I know my conversations with people in Ukraine during the time as well, sort of, I think, anecdotally back this up. There was this expectation that suddenly everything would change overnight. It was Ukraine's real first real experiment with true democracy. They felt that as soon as they wake up in the morning, as soon as they had gotten over, they'd done the sit-in, the protests, they would wake up, their country would be different, they would be different, they would be more successful, they'd have a nicer house, they would live in a better world, a better country. And... 
so much the same in Obama, in Obama's situation where so many people hoped and changed that, you know, suddenly they'd wake up and things would be very different. And I think it's fascinating when you parallel those two, those two areas that unfortunately the reality is that that change can only happen if everyone continues to work for that change. And what's really encouraging though, when you think about Ukraine is uh, that Ukrainians are so willing to come back to Maidan um, as they did in 2013 to, um, and, and in between even for smaller events to keep fighting for what they want and the country they want to see. And certainly that's something that's been very powerful and only grown in strength. And I think it is something that um, puts other countries in Ukraine's geopolitical sphere, particularly Russia, uh, in an uncomfortable position that they don't like to be in. Yeah, and going along with that, um, the Orange Revolution pretty much reformed the whole foreign policy and domestic policy that Russia had at that time. Um, up until that point, Russia was trying to have a balance between uh, working with the the West and the EU to also trying to rebuild the Soviet Union back to being uh, a strong leader in the global stage. So uh, all in all, the Orange Revolution pretty much became a watershed moment marking the end of the post-Soviet era and setting the stage for the climate that we have now, as some people might call it the new Cold War. So starting to just before uh, the presidential election, Vladimir Putin actually came to Kiev and he had full confidence in his ability to influence um, the voters into actually coming out and voting for uh, Yanukovych. And he had this true sense of idea that if this would have happened, then Ukraine would have come closer to Russia, sort of like how Belarus is to Moscow. But he didn't actually realize his mistake until afterwards where he completely swung it the other way and he pretty much made um, Ukrainians that were indifferent to the vote to actually come out and um, show their support for Yushchenko. And this pretty much set the stage for the change in the political alignment of the foreign and domestic views of Russia. Uh, after the revolution, Russia uh, viewed the West as being hostile to uh, to Russia as it viewed that they were interfering in its backyard in a sense where it was uh, interfering with Ukraine. So Russia began to become more nationalistic at the home front and became more confrontational on the world stage. Now, on the world stage, this pretty much led to the cyber attacks on Estonia and then the invasion of Georgia to then following in 2014, uh, the invasion of Donbass and the occupation of Crimea. But this isn't really the only thing that they uh, began after this time as well. They also introduced Russia today. And this was a direct response to their own defeat in the information war that uh, they had with Ukraine. They tried to pretty much influence them, but didn't really have a means of doing so. And we all know the success of uh, Russia today and the, and just Russian propaganda in general about controlling misinformation and leading the information wars. I mean, they're very, very capable now and have built that capacity up since then. Absolutely. The other thing that I think, as you mentioned, 
in yours, Andre. I think it's really fascinating to think about where Russia was on its journey around that time. I mean, we've talked about things like Magnitsky in the past on this podcast uh, and a lot of the other steps that were being taken by Putin to consolidate power and things like that. At this stage, I mean, Putin has only been in power since 2000. So in 2004, he's not sort of been, uh, I guess, embedded in the you know, global political psyche as the leader of Russia as as much as, as he is now. Um, and obviously this, I think there was a lot of uh, focus in, in, I guess, the Russian foreign policy before that around, you know, really just trying to find Russia's place in the world, assert dominance. And suddenly, and I really think for the most part, the, the political situation in Ukraine was just considered something that was safe, easy, doesn't need a lot of attention. And yet um, they were caught very much off guard. And I think even beyond the situation in Ukraine, one of the big focuses for Russia over those few years uh, that, that um, Andriy has talked about was to try and make sure that this outbreak of democracy wasn't contagious around all the other post-Soviet states. So there was a real effort done, not just in Ukraine, and, and obviously there were other conflicts like there was in Georgia that was mentioned, but there was a definitely a concerted effort to start really playing a key leading role in a post-Soviet set of countries. Yeah, and that's even clearly visible with Russia's obsession with the St. George Ribbon, which up until 2004 didn't very didn't play an active role in Russia's um, Russian society or their commemoration of World War II, and now it's basically the symbol of Russian nationalism, and it was um, sort of emphasised as a way to distinguish um, Russia from Ukraine in that sense. Yeah, and this pretty much builds up to uh, Russia trying to pull in its uh, its citizens, trying to get them to conform to what Putin really wants. So he even started putting pressure on Russia's NGOs and their international ties, labeling them as a foreign agents. So he was just trying to crack down, prevent another color revolution within Russia itself. After the Orange Revolution, Russia has been haunted by the prospects of its own uh, revolution, and it has gone to such lengths just to prevent these people from gathering together and providing momentum in regions where they are opposed to Putin. And so with this, Putin had to pretty much rein in all of these as he reviewed extremists or anti-Russians or and Russia-phobic citizens. Um, he pretty much tried to prevent democratic uprising. Yeah, and I think this kind of highlights again the significance of the Orange Revolution and not became a like a guiding light, but it sort of set like a second trend of democratization in the post-Soviet space. So you had that first wave in the 90s, and particularly in the Baltic states, which went on to join the EU and NATO in 2004. And now you're seeing that next wave now of like Georgia, Ukraine, and Moldova becoming more democratic and moving towards the EU and becoming more active players in European uh, diplomacy. And so hopefully there'll be another wave in the future of more countries slowly democratizing and becoming more westernized. Certainly this was a, a true turning point for Eastern Europe and just European and global affairs in general for, uh, in terms of the 21st century. 
and I think the makeup of the countries in the former post-Soviet states in the in Eastern Europe, the makeup and their allegiances and how they exist today would be drastically different had this not occurred. So for all the things you may have heard that suggest it was a fizzler or something that wasn't quite as important as it might have sounded initially, I believe that time has shown that it has been it was always as important as it was um that the importance of it no doubt um became even more um critical as ukraine stepped up a second time in 2013 to have its voice heard and if you want to read more about this particular topic there's a great article from peter dickinson on atlanticcouncil.org how ukraine's orange revolution shaped 21st century geopolitics so feel free to check that out In the news this week, Ukraine has won its first medal at the Tokyo Olympics. Daria Bilodid won bronze in the women's 48-kilo judo event. Members of the United States Congress have called on President Biden to reschedule the date of President Zelensky's visit to the United States so that he can have an opportunity to meet with the Congress. The call comes from the bipartisan Congressional Ukraine Caucus which claims Biden is playing politics with Zelensky's visit to prevent him from addressing Congress in the wake of the recent US-German deal on the completion of the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Both of Ukraine's previous pro-Western presidents, Yushchenko and Poroshenko, addressed full sessions of Congress on their first official visits to Washington. Zelensky is scheduled to visit Washington on the 30th of August, during which Congress is scheduled to be on recess. President Zelensky has visited one of Georgia's two front lines to get better acquainted with the security situation in occupied Abkhazia. Zelensky noted that both Ukraine and Georgia stood united in their initiatives to return the issue of their temporarily occupied territories to the agenda of both leading international and regional organizations. Russia currently occupies two regions in Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, both since 1992. Both countries also fought a brief war in 2008, which saw Russia further strengthen its control over these two regions. Air Canada, the national carrier of Canada, has now introduced Ukrainian as a language option when watching in-flight movies. Ukraine's security service has exposed a Russian FSB spy network operating in the Kherson region. During the sting operation, it was exposed that some members of the network were current and former members of Ukraine's security service. All those arrested have been charged with treason. This operation continues Ukraine's effort to clean up its security service a process which has been actively pushed since 2014. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more Ukulat Abroad content.